Welcome to the podcast Past Imperfect, a podcast about South African history, literature and art. The first podcast is one on Sol Plaki, the politician, writer and activist. It was recorded in a flat in Cape Town, filled with the noises of traffic, hooters and motorbikes. The sound quality isn't great on this one, but give it a chance, it's got a great story. I'm sitting in a rather noisy Cape Town flat in the centre of the city with Sol Plaiki's biographer, Brian Willen. The first question I would like to ask you is a simple one. Who was Sol Plaiki? How did he grow up and where was he from? Okay, so Sol Plaiki was a black South African. Uh, he, he was of uh, Tswana origin. Um, he's best known, I, I suppose, for his, his role as a, a political spokesman in the early part of the 20th century, and for being, for example, one of the founders of the African National Congress in, in 1912. But he was also a, a great newspaper man, editor, a journalist. He, he wrote very, very extensively. And, and I, I suppose more than anybody, I, I would say, in that period, you know, he, he gave voice to African views and aspirations um, at a time when South Africa's rulers were busy trying to convey the idea that South Africa was a, a white man's country. And essentially, Plaiki took a, a very different view to that and uh, uh, became a very well-known public figure. He, he was born in uh, 1876, actually in the Free States, which is not far from from Bosso, which is quite important in the sense that Plaiki was always very conscious of, of where he came from and always very, very aware of what happened to Africans in the Free State. And, and the story that always kind of rankled with him was the way that his people, the Barolong, helped the, the Boer trekkers. They were um, threatened by uh, Zilikazi's forces um, and essentially the Barolong rescued them. Uh, then formed uh, a military alliance with them in order to, uh, to force Zilikazi and his people you know, northwards into Zimbabwe as, as it now is. Um, but then essentially took over control of most of the, the free states, um, despite having been, been kind of allies, you know, in, 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 in the wars. And that's essentially the, the plot of what we're going to talk about later is uh, his novel, Mahudi. Exactly. How did he become educated and to what level was he educated? Because this is a fascinating element of Plaiki. Yeah, he, he was, um, I mean, his his parents were... Uh, were Christian converts, um, in fact, second generation um, Christian converts. So he he was effectively third generation. And most recently, I mean, his his kind of forebears had had contact with different uh, missionary societies uh, from the kind of eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties onwards. Um, Plaiki's parents had had settled at the um, uh, the Berlin Missionary Society's uh, mission in uh, Bethany in the, the Free State. Um, very shortly before Plaiki was born, uh, they decided to, to move on. Um, and I think it was essentially it was because they were by this time fairly wealthy cattle owners. And uh, I think they wanted, you know, more land for their, for their cattle without such high dues, which they had to pay the mission society. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up um, a few years later at um, Dirk Neal, which mm-hmm. is near Barclay West in uh, Greek the West, as it was at that time, then became you know part of the, the Cape Colony. So right near Kimberley? Right near Kimberley. It's about um, 15 miles from from, from Kimberley. So, yeah, so clo- close to Kimberley. Um, and this was where um, Plaiki, I mean, Plaiki was about two or three years old when they arrived there. Um, and essentially that's where he, he grew up. 
he was there from around about 1880 to uh, 1894 when he, he left and got a job in Kimberley. Um, but during that time, he went to school at the uh, uh, the mission school. I mean, all of these missionary societies ran mission mm-hmm. schools. Um, his mentor, or two mentors who were particularly important, were Ernst Westhall and his uh, his his wife Mary, who were an important influence on him. Uh, particularly, actually, Mary Westhall, who was a unusually for a, a kind of wife of a missionary. She was a uh, a trained high school teacher from Germany. She taught at a a high school in Germany before marrying her husband and coming out. Um, so I think when Plyke got as far as he could in the mission school after standing three, mm-hmm. um, both of the Westphals, and particularly Murray Westphal, then took him in and gave him some uh, extra tuition. And, uh, um, you know, this included reading Shakespeare, apparently, and um, Walter Scott, uh, learning how to play the piano, learning apparently some, you know, some French as uh, as well as German, and it, it's clear from the uh, the missionary records that you know, Plyke was, a, you know, as, as one might expect, given his kind of later achievements. You know, he was a, a very bright child, and you know, the missionaries were often, you know, wrote about, um, you know, how how quick he was to to learn, and uh, you know, he, in a way, he was the kind of justification for their efforts in mm-hmm. the mission field. He worked a little bit as a kind of uh, teacher's aide or. He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He was uh, he was an, an assistant teacher, mm. um, effectively. Um, and interestingly, um, Westphal's son, Potart, uh, who was actually also a missionary, he one of his memories later in life was of of Plyke when he was a young assistant teacher, actually teaching him the alphabet. Mm. So this is it's a kind of reversal of the usual yeah. the usual kind of roles of, of what goes on. And he had an incredible propensity for learning languages. He seemed to pick them up very quickly, including yeah. German. And, and that was obviously an important element to how he would um, grow as a politician. That's right. That's right. Um, and and it, was, it was particularly, I mean, he, you know, his first language was obviously Setswana. Um, and his second language was um, Dutch or Cape Dutch. Um, and then actually, his third language, third language um, was then was then English. Um, so when you think of you know his kind of subsequent career as a, a writer in English, that you know there's there's a little bit of thinking about. It. But I think the languages. Um, I mean, he, he he you know Peel was a fairly polyglot kind of place. You mm-hmm. know, there were people of all sorts of different backgrounds living there, um, and I think Plankey you know did, did pick up you know these languages very easily. Yeah. Um, and even from you know quite a young age, the missionaries say, well, yes, you know, even when he was a boy, he was actually very useful to us in helping us to, you know, to translate and to interpret. As as did his um, uh, his father, who was a, who was a deacon of, mm-hmm. of, of the of the church, and also and his uh, his elder brother, um, you know, who was also you know close to the uh, the missionaries mm-hmm. as well. And then he went to Kimberley in search of work, or I can't remember if he had a, a job lined up or whether he went looking for it. No, he had a he had a job lined up. He had applied for a job um, with the, the post office, mm-hmm. um, which which in a way wasn't altogether surprising because the um, the post office in Kimberley actually had quite a, a strong reputation amongst the uh, the black community for being willing to uh, to employ Africans as um, letter carriers and uh, telegraph messengers. Um, and that had been that had been in place for by the time Plyke got there. That had started about 
15 years before. And that, it, it, it kind of arose out of a time when, when Kimberley, you know, you, you went to Kimberley to make your fortune. They found it very difficult to find people to do, you know, poorly paid, lonely jobs, you know, such as working for the, the post office. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you were to deliver letters or telegrams, you know, you needed to, they needed to get to the right, you needed to read, you know, so they got delivered to the right place. Um, and so they approached Lovedale and Lovedale said, this sounds a good idea. Um, you know, we'll, we'll send up, you know, some of our people. Um, and so that's when the tradition started and it, it continued and it remained in place you know, until really the early decades of the uh, 20th century. This is just a slight aside, but considering what happened later in Clarky's life, what exactly was Lovedale? Um, you know, it seems to be one of these things that have been forgotten in South African history uh -huh. a little bit. Um, uh -huh. So what was Lovedale? Lovedale was a college. Um, it was run by uh, Presbyterian missionaries in the, uh, the Eastern Cape. And it was, it was, it was I suppose, the, the college that provided for Africans the highest level of education that it was possible for them to get inside South Africa. Now, you know, it, wasn't, it certainly you know, fell well short of, of being a university education. It was more of a kind of a higher secondary level. But nevertheless, if you were an educated black South African, you know, who had done well at your primary school. That's probably where you aspire to. So uh, it did acquire a, a kind of almost iconic sort of reputation as, you know, the, the place that provides education to black South Africans who could then, you know, go out into the world mm -hmm. and, uh, and make their way. And so Plyke in Kimberley would obviously meet a whole group of people who were from Lovedale, including yeah. um, Isaiah, Bud, well, how did that group of people come? Because it's a really fascinating story in your, in your biography to read about the society that they formed and, and what they did. Yeah, most of these people had what I suppose might be perceived as quite kind of lowly sorts of jobs. But nevertheless, um, you know, they, they were well-educated. Um, they were ambitious. Um, and I, I think they had a they had a kind of huge sense of optimism that it would be possible for them to make a place for themselves in the life of the Cape Colony. And you know there were there were reasons for that. You know that are, are kind of sometimes forgotten today. I mean the Cape Colony, for example, had a non-racial constitution. I think it was actually only about two pages compared to you know, today's yeah. today's document. Um, but uh, essentially, in the Cape Colony, colour does not come into the the Cape Constitution. Um, there was a non-racial franchise. Um, you know, you had to have property worth a certain amount. You, well, you had to be male, first of all, but this was no different from, you know, the rest of the world at, at this time. Mm -hmm. um, you had to have property worth a certain amount uh, or an income uh, of a certain amount. And then there was a, a literacy test. You know, you basically had to be able to write your name. And uh, you could then qualify to vote mm -hmm. in the same way as, as anybody else. And similarly, the courts of law were supposedly accessible mm -hmm. to everybody. There was equality before the law. Admittedly, you know, it didn't always work in practice, but, you know, the theory was there. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, I think, you know, all of these things within, I suppose, you know, the broader context of the British Empire, there was always a kind of sense that there were allies in the British imperial government and the figure of, of Queen Victoria, who, you know, formed a, a very important part of, of this kind of discourse of loyalty, if you like. So I, I think all of this, um, you know, encouraged this group of people. And actually, it, it, it was 
women as well as men. When it came to, you know, singing, there were choirs that they had. They had debating societies. You know, they had they had readings. They there was a Philharmonic society that both Pliny and Isaiah Budimbele were were involved in. And you know, intellectually, it was a hugely sort of stimulating environments. Um, you know, for somebody like like Pliny to, I suppose, first of all, to you know, to grow up in and to learn from those around him, but then to, you know, then to make his own contribution. And his own contribution in some ways was influenced by just what you were talking about, the Cape liberal tradition. Yeah. And you were just talking about the the courts and the appeals to the courts that Mikey would spend a lot of his life appealing to, to courts and various issues. And actually it's a tradition that kind of lives today yeah. in South Africa and that activism is, you know, taken to the courts. One of the figures who recurs throughout the biography is advocate Henry Burton, who would then become the one of the, was he no I think he was the second minister of native affairs. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what what was his relationship with Burton? Well, I, I think it, it was it was it was quite interesting. Um, um, I mean, Burton was a uh, uh, he was a lawyer practicing in Kimberley actually, and. Um, uh, he he's mentioned uh, the reason we know a little bit about the origins of, of you know his kind of views and relationship with Burton is that Blakey mentions him um, in his in the diary that he wrote during the the siege of Mafeking mm-hmm. in eighteen ninety nine nineteen hundred um, and he he's he was very complimentary about um, Burton's willingness to take on cases um, on behalf of. Uh, black South Africans such as himself and uh, and Abadabele, um, you know, in Kimberley in the 1890s. And it was things like um, past law cases mm-hmm. partic- were particularly important. Um, and, um, you know, when you think of, of Pliny's kind of later faith, if you like, in, in the law, and, you know, which sometimes, you know, people today can, you know, can look back at think well you know why was he so naive about this well actually you know they did they did used to win you know a number of of, of cases there was a, a well-known case in Kimberley in 1898 mm-hmm. um, where a uh, it was a man called Mankazana um, uh, he was he was arrested and, uh, and you know hauled up for not having a pass so they, they basically made a test case of it um, engaged but I mean they paid him I mean Burton wasn't doing this for, for yeah. nothing yeah. Um, but he, uh, they, they won the case, and it, it, it went to appeal, and, and you know the the judgment was upheld by in the the High Court of of, of Greenland and West, and it was seen as a you know a famous victory where you know educated Africans like Plaiki and Butabele and Makazana, you know, were now free from this kind of arbitrary arrest mm-hmm. because the the judgment had said that um, that police had to have some other reason. Than that they were just walking down the streets yeah. uh, in order to make an arrest. Now, I, I think this, you know, uh, the subsequent legislation regulations were, you know, were then brought in, you know, which changed it. But uh, it was an important yeah. case that they won. I mean, in a strange way, because they won those cases, the subsequent union government then used those cases against them and. Um, yeah. There's a great scene um, with Marvin Brando in a dry white season um, where he's acting as a South African lawyer, where he's, where he's a similar kind of character to Henry Burton, and this guy comes to appeal to him, and he says, look, you know, each time I win the case, they just then use that case to change the law. Yeah. And there's that, yeah. a, certain, a certain sort of truth to the fact that they almost use Cape laws 
in, later yeah. on in the union yeah. to kind of shore up, yeah. um, you know, the beginnings of, I guess, apartheid legislation. Yeah. And there was also an interesting, there was a very interesting by-election in mm. Berkeley West in 1898, um, which was um, contested by... Uh, I mean, Cecil, this is an interesting you know, connection. Uh, Feige, when he was at the mission at Peniel, Peniel fell within the Barclay West constituency. Therefore, he was represented in Parliament by Cecil Rose. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's quite an interesting yeah. historical uh, uh, connection. Um, but the, the, the election of 1898 was, was particularly interesting because Henry Burton uh, stood against Cecil Rhodes in that election. Um, and he was standing for what was then known as the Bond. Uh, Henry Burton was standing for the Bond, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Cecil Rhodes was the progressives. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, you know, won the election. And actually there was an interesting appeal. Burton then appealed against the results. Um, but but what was uh, the reason why Plyke mentions this in, in his diary is that um, uh, his decision to back um, Henry Burton in the election caused a big falling out with Ernst Westphal, his missionary mentor. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, an example of where Plyke was obviously very willing to go his own way. He had his own kind of strong views mm. and, and he felt that, you know, Henry Burton was, you know, somebody, you know, who they should be backing against Cecil Rhodes. He, even though Cecil Rhodes was the kind of, you know, the British candidate and, and all of that. And if I remember correctly, Burton claimed that Rhodes had somehow corrupted the the election. There's absolutely no doubt that he had. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> there was there was an inquiry that then took place, um, and it was one of those rather interesting inquiries where piles of evidence was put forward indicating what had been going on, um, and then the judgment, the Chief Justice's view was, uh, oh, well, they didn't think it quite counted as corruption, so. So you know, Rhodes was was, was led off yeah. know, for the time being, anyway. So um, I mean, we've had inquiries like that <laughs> subsequently. Absolutely. He continued in Kimberley, and then he moved up to Mafeking. What was he doing there? He 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 got a job as a uh, court interpreter, um, and this this was one of the jobs that you know, if you were a, an educated black South African. Uh, being a court interpreter was one of it's one of the, the kind of few jobs really commensurate to your your kind of qualifications. But it was a job that um, a lot of them aspired to, and uh, and Plyke had certainly been very busy qualifying himself in the different languages that that you needed to learn. So that had been one of the I think his main tasks in Kimberley was to learn and become fluent in a variety of, of both African and, and European languages. And so when a job came up in 1898 in, uh, in Africa, uh, he, he applied and he got the job and he moved there in late in 1898. Um, and then about a year later, obviously, you know, things happened and war, war broke out and uh, and Mafeking was was effectively surrounded by Boer forces. Um, you know, the the Transvaal border being actually quite quite close to to where Mafeking is, and and that lasted, you know, for um, five nearly six months. Mm. Um, and Plyke during that time was uh, uh, actually immensely helpful to the the British authorities, British military mm. authorities, both Powell and his and his officers. Mm. Plyke had a uh, actually a very good relationship and this again is the kind of, of thing that you know sometimes kind of forgotten but you get a 
you get a sense from like his diary and his um you know his res- respect for charles bell who was his uh, immediate superior the, the magistrate in, in africa but Blackie really had had abilities that made him extremely useful to the, the british military authorities um, and it was Pikey who you know when as well as the spies mm-hmm. went backwards and forwards um, through the war lines um, when they came back again Pikey would debrief them and he would take uh, you know make extensive notes of what they had to say and he would then write this up in the form of a, a kind of military intelligence report uh, which would then go to Bell who would effectively sign it and, and it was then you know sent on to to Baden Powell and to uh, and to Robert Cecil, actually. Robert Cecil was Baden Powell's chief intelligence officer, uh, who happened to be the son of the British Prime Minister at, at the time. So there was kind of fairly aristocratic company that Pikey had in, in Africa at the time. And certainly at this stage, and I think really throughout his life, he believed in this idea of loyalty to, to Britain and that that had some kind of meaning and that. Britain and what we'll see later is that Britain had some kind of obligation to step in and, and on some terms in sort of the legislation that was happening after Union. But there's certainly th- that, that sense of he was loyal to to the British crown at that period during Mafeking and that that should have consequences. Yeah. I think, I mean, there was certainly a, a, a view and a feeling and, and a hope that um, if the British government lived up to the kind of promises that they had been making about the treatment of the African population once the war was won, then what they hoped effectively was that the the system in place in the Cape Colony uh, would then be extended to you know the, the conquered world republics mm-hmm. as they expected them soon to be. And almost immediately that didn't seem to be the case. So I want to just skip ahead a little bit into sure. into Union and what yeah. happened after. So there's an eight-year period um, between the Boer War and Union, um, but the Union began to set off a lot of issues for Plaiky. So what were these and what was the result of, 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 um, of that? Yeah, I mean, Plaiky, um, I mean, like, like many of his other... Colleagues and contemporaries, um, they they were opposed to union in the way that it was brought in, and where effectively it maintained the Cape franchise in the Cape Colony or Cape Province as it now became, but um, it it wasn't extended to the you know the other parts of the country. So that was a huge disappointment. But what was important was that it was retained within the Cape. It was, it was, and that's actually what gave Plaiky quite a bit of hope. Um, and uh, I, I mean, quite interestingly, uh, uh, and again, this you know might might seem surprising. One of the the issues that came up at the time of union was whether it would be good, a good idea to incorporate the uh, high commission territories, you know, Botswanaland, Lesotho, Swaziland, um, into union. And, and most people, most Africans, you know, were opposed to this because they essentially didn't trust you know, uh, the South African government. To respect their their rights, yeah, and um, with legitimate reasons, for very legitimate reasons. But Plaiky, interestingly, took a different view. Um, you know, he his his view was that really, um, given his experience of having seen the way in which there was a particular case in Botswana land, where um, a Botswana chief involved in a succession dispute was essentially locked up without trial for about six years. Um, 
had that deeply offended Pikey with his kind of sense of fairness and the law and you know proper legal process. Um, and he was far more inclined to view uh, you know the kind of the, the, the Cape judiciary as the one to aspire to. And essentially, he took the view that you know since there would be a new Supreme Court in South Africa to which black South Africans would have access and would be able to appeal, then it would be an advantage to these people from these uh, high commission territories to be part of that. Yeah. So, you know, you could say, well, you know, politically, you know, this was a bit of a misjudgment as it turned out, but I think what it shows is the, the kind of depth of his roots in a, a, Cape, a Cape legal tradition. Uh, because things after that fairly quickly did, did start to go wrong. And what is incredible is his relationship with all of these figures. For example, Henry Burton, who, who was a minister, and you know he, he seemed to have on a few occasions met uh, Louis Boerter, and, and Smuts, he was familiar with Smuts, um, you know, and he did meet with these people a great deal. And you know, do you think it's fair to say that he believed that they would eventually come around to his point of view or i i you know it's it, it's one of those things that's that's difficult to say you know exactly what was going on in his mind but he he certainly had a, a huge amount of confidence in his own persuasive powers mm-hmm. um, and i think he he felt that um he felt an obligation to pursue this strategy to its kind of furthest limit. In other words, you know, he felt that really it was up to people like him and and a few others um, to do absolutely all they could, you know, to exhaust all the kind of possible moral, constitutional, legal remedies. Um, And he did, and he did feel, you know, he, he, I mean, he was a hugely persuasive speaker. Mm -hmm. um, And, uh, you know, he was, he was able, for example, to speak to uh, Louis Borter in, and fluent Dutch, which you know, I, I think very, very few other black South Africans had quite that sort of you know level of capability. Mm-hmm. And he knew the you know he knew the ins and outs of um, of political debates, um, and you know he knew the kind of the compliments to pay to people. He knew the names to drop. Um, uh, he knew the the kind of uh, the lobbying you know that mm-hmm. had to be gone into. So he was a hugely you know capable uh, politician from. You know, from 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 that mm-hmm. point of view, I think there was always a sense in his mind that um, the policies that the South African government started to come up with, you know, were totally unacceptable to him and essentially evil. But he would never believe that that was true of the people concerned. Yeah. So he he always felt that you know people could be persuaded mm-hmm. that you know their their minds could be changed. That if only you know they saw people like him and his colleagues essentially as human beings like them, mm-hmm. then they might take a different view of things. Because it, it really is a kind of fascinating period of history in that it, you know, all of this legislation didn't seem to be coming from an individual. You know, it wasn't led by Porter in specifically or, you know, and, and even, you know, the Minister of Native Affairs, who was a relatively liberal minister, and and actually there were several liberal ministers of native affairs. That it didn't seem to be coming from them, but it seemed to be coming from the kind of sentiment in the country and really the sentiment north of the Cape Colony. In in it came from Transvaal, Free State and Natal, a lot of these districts. this now predominated. Yeah. And you know, and this and this was Afri- essentially Afrikaner nationalism, which yeah. which was becoming, you know, more powerful and there were 
particular interests in the Free State and, and the Transvaal, but um, you know we're looking for far harsher policies in relation to the African population, um, and particularly in relation to land. And so th then we were heading to 1913 and the Natives Land Act, but before that, in 1912, as the legislation was you know being put before Parliament, there was an important moment, I guess, that would kind of change the history of South Africa, um, in that there was a conference um, and an organization was formed, which was then called the South African Native National Congress. That would obviously become the ANC. What was Plackey's role in that? He was one of those, one of the main figures involved, um, and he, he became, was elected its first general secretary. The, the early Congress, you know, we're accustomed, I suppose, these days to thinking of it as a, a kind of single, you know, united organisation. It wasn't really that at the time. Essentially, it was a kind of coming together of a collection of uh, existing organisations. Um, Plyke particularly had been involved in um, a South African Native Convention, it was called, which was rooted particularly in the, the Free State. And then there were uh, other organisations from the Transvaal and the Cape Colony. And I, I think it, and it had been difficult to kind of reconcile the different, you know, interests and traditions involved. It was, uh, or it, it's widely attributed to Pixley Seme, who was an overseas educated lawyer who kind of came back from his education overseas at this time. Um, and he really... Uh, you know, took the took the initiative in trying to kind of you know bang heads together and to uh, to try and get people to you know to agree, um, and he you know he succeeded in that. But I think part of what he did was um, um, you know he actually managed to kind of ensure that the Transvaal, rather than I think than the the Free State or the Cape, that where the kind of you know most of the initiatives previously had come from, um, it was now kind of you know rooted in the in the Transvaal. And I, I think the other, the other key thing that um, that Seme did, and this was certainly very much in line with Plyke's thinking as well, was he involved the the chiefs because um, I, I I think previously a lot of the existing black organisations tended to be organisations of the mission educated classes, and and that fact alone had actually made it quite easy for the government simply to you know to ignore them and to say look you don't sort of represent the entire African people, you know, we, we don't feel that you're, you're speaking for them. And I think Sene and, and, and Plyke both felt that, well, you know, if we really brought the, the chiefs in, mm -hmm. and they were kind of, you know, formally became, you know, there was a house of chiefs, and, and so then, you know, then this would this would be a new kind of organisation, and, 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 and it was. Yeah, and I mean, it, uh, as far as, you know, certainly a lot of African politics, it really was a unique solution to the problem in that it was not tribalist. It, it, it said that, you know, all the tribes had to come together rather than be divided. You know, what, what is interesting, I, you used the word polyglot um, in reference to where Plyke grew up, but this was a polyglot organization, yeah. and Plyke fitted almost perfectly. He was the kind of perfect piece for this, yeah. for this organization in that he could speak the majority of all of the languages that came together to, to form this organization. How influential do you think he was in this idea of, of joining everybody together? I think, I mean, I think he was, you know, for a, a decade or so, he'd been, you know, writing about the needs, you know, 
to do this. And, and certainly he'd been one of the kind of leading advocates. But he certainly wasn't alone. I mean, it was, um, you know, the idea of a kind of new, fully representative national organisation. I mean, it didn't actually go back for a while. It, mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't a kind of particularly new idea. It was simply that, you know, the obstacles that lay in the way of, of achieving it had up until then, you know, basically prevented it from, you know, from happening. But I think it was the shock of union, you know, that really made people feel, well, you know, look, the whites have been together. Really, we, we really had no alternative, you know, but to do the same. And so then there was the 1913 Natives Land Act, and with that came the organisation of the first deputation to to Britain. Who was involved in that, and yeah. what you know what did they achieve, and what happened during right. this period? Right. Uh, this was um, a decision that the organisation took to appeal to the British Imperial government, having exhausted all attempts to persuade the South African government to to take a different view to you know to amend the legislation. And technically, the constitutional arrangements did make possible an appeal to, to Britain. Not that anybody really had any hope that you know, it might actually bear fruit. But so, know, this, so the appeal was based on the idea that that the, the king, you know, signed off on the exactly. uh, on the South African laws, but he was a he was a figurehead. Was a figurehead. But he's, he still had technically the power to exactly to annul exactly certain legislative decisions. Exactly, exactly. But it was very much a kind of technical thing, and everybody realised that the chances of this happening you know, were remote. But then, you know, the question was, well, what what alternatives did they have? And I think they all felt that, well, really, you know, we must exhaust all the constitutional alternatives before considering anything else. I mean, the way, interestingly, um, uh, a minority of people, you know, would say, well, thought, well, we should be backing strike action, or um, we should be going in for passive resistance, you know, such as Gandhi, you know, had, had, had kind of demonstrated, but. Um, they, they, that, that view was a minority view, and that was not accepted. So they decided to go ahead with a, a deputation to to England. Um, they they set off in. I mean, they still believe the law in some ways would, you know, adjust system. They 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 essentially felt that I think that um, they they had to go through this process, mm. but that in the process of going through the process, they would appeal if necessary to public opinion. Um, in Britain, and if necessary, you know, beyond that. And I think there was always this kind of strong sense that uh, part of their difficulty arose from the fact that people essentially didn't understand what they were facing, and that if only the British public and the rest of the world knew what was going on in South Africa, then things would be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Clikey, as a, a newspaper man, a writer, you know, had a uh, you know, was well aware of you know the potential strength of of public opinion. So I think that was in their minds as well. Um, you know, when they they set off, and they set off in in sort of May nineteen fourteen, and they didn't get anywhere with the uh, colonial secretary. They they did get a meeting, but he essentially said, you know, this you know this is up to the South African government, and we you know we would not propose interfering. And um, we suggest, you know, you, you go home and then work to do what you can within South Africa rather than appealing you know, outside. Um, and at that point, the war broke out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, as it happened, 
the Congress actually had an executive committee meeting going on at exactly that time in, in Liechtenstein, and they decided that they would recall the deputation from, from England because they accepted that no more could be achieved, and if there was a, a war on, then you know there wasn't much more they could do, and that actually they'd be a, a better political strategy was to sort of demonstrate their loyalty to the British imperial government by offering to join up and, and help uh, help the Allies in the war against against Germany and their allies. Um, however, um, Pleike, um decided that he would not go back. The other delegates, you know, returned and they'd, they'd all run out of money anyway, so I think they were quite keen to go back. But Pleike had by this time resolved to write a book about and um, you know he he again this is in the spirit of appealing to uh, public opinion particularly British public opinion and so he proposed to write a book about the Land Act um, but then to kind of build upon you know, his observations of the legislation and the effects that it was it was having you know people being forced off their land but to locate all of this within a much broader kind of historical and political analysis and that's that's essentially what he did. And he started writing it on the boat he's over there. He started he started writing it on the boat. Um, exactly. Um, and essentially he had finished writing it by early by Easter nineteen fifteen. Mm-hmm. But he had a huge problem, I mean, in basically finding a publisher. Uh, I mean he found several publishers were willing to publish it, but they needed him to pay them to do it. Yeah. And he didn't have any money. Um, he made a bit of money. By, you know, he worked for uh, a well-known phoneticist, uh, Dan Jones, and he raised a bit of money. He wrote a few articles, and, uh, and he certainly got some loans. Uh, but this was barely, you know, enough to live on, mm-hmm. let alone finding the money that he needed to pay the publisher. But he did have a group of friends there. I mean, one of the great successes of Planky's whole life is his kind of social yeah. abilities and he he gathered a group of people largely women around him who yeah. had some association yeah. with South Africa um can you speak about that because that is kind of fascinating yeah. little group of people that he used to yeah he he he, he did and there was a, I mean, there was a very interesting group of of, of women um, as you say with South African connections in many cases um who did respond um you know, for a variety of reasons, very, very powerfully to his cause, um, and and I, I think you know the thing that that ran through it all is that they were um, in varying degree feminists. They were. Um, I mean, this was the time of the suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. Most of these women, you know, were involved in that and and fighting for the vote, the vote for women, and saw a kind of immediate parallel mm-hmm. between you know the disabilities that women faced in England and that you know blacks faced in, in South Africa. And several of them had actually particular South African connections as well. I mean, one of them, I think, probably his strongest supporter in England was Georgiana Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, who was the widow of Saul Solomon, one of the you know the kind of archetypal figure in in the history of, of Cape liberalism, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it's obvious you know from their her kind of um, relationship with Pleike that you know she saw Pleike as as the kind of the vindication if you like of her of her late husband's you mm-hmm. know ideals, and um, so she was a, a a powerful supporter and helped him to raise some money. And also fought along with another of her friends, Jane Croft in Unwin, mm-hmm. um, who was um, married to the publisher Fisher Unwin, 
and was the daughter of um, you know the famous Victorian figure uh, Richard Cobden, and um, uh, the two of them got into a huge battle with the um, uh, the Anti-Slavery and Aborigines Protection Society, which was the kind of leading organisation you know concerned with the colonies, um, because you know this organisation, which on the face of it you'd have thought well they should have been supporting the five mm. actually they didn't. Um, yeah, not only I mean, they did. John Harris, who was the head of that, did a huge amount of damage. To he, he 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 did. He was very opposed to Pikey. I mean, essentially, he was a a sympathizer with policies of segregation mm-hmm. and um, and General Porter's government in South Africa, um, and actually tried to stop Pikey writing the book mm-hmm. and uh, trying to suppress it. And this is partly why you know it took such a long time for the book to come out, and it was a, a huge battle that that the Pikey had to face during the time that he was in England mm-hmm. and you know eventually you know with the, the help and support of these friends he he succeeded but he uh, he could very easily not have and it did eventually come out and it got some very good reviews what what were the results of the book what you know was there anything that came out of the book I think the uh, I mean there was no kind of immediate uh, have we mentioned its name yeah, <laughs> the book is the book is native life in, in South, South Africa. Um, you know, perhaps one of Pikey's two you know best best known books. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was um, it, it was very well received in England. I mean, he it was written in the first instance as an appeal to the British public, um, and uh, it's it's as you say, it was very well reviewed, um, uh, often from some kind of quite surprising sources, and certainly to the distress of John Harris from the Anti-Slavery Society, who was very put out by the favourable reviews that the book achieved. You know, the main message that came through from the reviews was, you know, we understand the case that you're putting over, you've made a strong case, but really we can't do anything about it for the time being because there's still a war on and we must wait until the end of the war and then, you know, we must reconsider and and see what can be done at that point. Mm -hmm. And Pikey was very pro the idea of um, South Africans helping in this war. And it was one of the things that Olive Schreiner seems to have not liked about the book, although whether she'd read it or not by the time she made that <laughs> criticism isn't quite clear. But she was said that, you know, that, that she didn't like it because she was a pacifist. I think it was it was one of I mean Pikey remember had been through the siege of of, of Magic and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and effectively had been not exactly fighting, but was certainly part of the you know the defence of of Mafeking. and uh, it was always um, he, he always uh, felt that it was an immensely powerful argument that that if you could fight alongside white South Africans or you know the, the British Empire in its hour of need, then uh, this was a step in the direction of recognition of your political rights, mm-hmm. and so the kind of expression of of royal of loyalty, if you like, that would come. Uh, by you know supporting the British war effort, by advocating that his people should join up. Um, uh, I mean, e- even even if it was only as unarmed labour laborers, because there was this huge um, you know concern prejudice in South yeah. Africa that you know, the, the white South African government and white South African opinion, most of it, um, you know, took the view that uh, arming black South Africans, you know, is probably not a thing to be doing, but that if under pressure from the British Imperial government, they, they, they wanted you know, unarmed labourers to go and help work on the Western Front in, 
actually in the face of a lot of opposition from uh, Afrikaner nationalists. Mm -hmm. And then there was a, quite an interesting um, uh, speech towards the end of the war. King George uh, V, the English king, actually spoke to the native labour contingent mm -hmm. uh, in, in France and, uh, uh, and made all sorts of encouraging you know, comments about um, uh, you know, rewards for loyalty and uh, you know, rights of its subjects. Mm -hmm. And I think it all fed into a discourse, if you like, that um, that Clikey felt was uh, uh, was helpful in, in encouraging mm -hmm. in trying to uh, you know secure their rights at the end of the war when that when that came. Yeah. Um, and actually, within South Africa, native life in South Africa did make a big impact as well. It was it was discussed in the South African Parliament. Um, you know, it was quite internal voter read it, and he read it, yeah. and he read it because he and he didn't seem entirely critical of it either. I mean, he didn't deny any of the points that were being made in in, in any kind of particular way. Yeah, well, it was quite interesting to if you compare General Bolter's reactions with those of John Harris, mm. you know, who was you know you know hugely aggressive in his condemnation of. Book, um, uh, but General Borter. I mean, I, I suppose it, it, in Borter's case, it's partly to be explained by who he was writing to. He was writing to Georgiana Solomon, Plaikie's mm -hmm. uh, friend, yeah. um, and and you know she was actually a friend of his as well. Mm -hmm. um, Georgiana Solomon um, was particularly friendly with General Borter's wife, uh, who I think was was Irish, and the two of them together have formed a. Uh, a women's organisation in South Africa in the aftermath of the uh, the South African War. Mm -hmm. So there are all these interesting kind of cross-cutting connections yeah. and, and relationships that sort of rather complicate the kind of you know simple narratives that sometimes get constructed. Absolutely.